Welcome to the Rally Point Podcast, where we equip you to support others. I'm Bobby Jackson. And I'm Noah Thro. And today we're going to be talking about the concept of resilience. Bobby and I will be chatting with a professor of ministry all about the concept and research behind the idea of resilience and what it looks like in our lives and churches. Yeah, resilience has become a really popular idea over the last couple of years. People seem to like to throw the idea at each other, like uh, talking about how we can build resilience in our kids or that sort of thing. And it's really the idea that different people can face a similar situation. And while some people will kind of be crushed under it, will collapse under it, will not be able to deal with it or cope with it well, and others have the ability to push through it. And so I'm really excited to hear what Dr. Decker has to share on this concept because he's a true expert in the field. So we're really pumped for this episode. Yeah, well, and one thing I appreciate about him being an expert in the field is I feel like with this term, everybody sort of has a different definition based on their experience. And so you'll talk about resilience and they'll talk about, you know, working really hard in their education, or you'll talk about resilience and they'll talk about, you know, their time in the military or the emotional struggles of, you know, their their family life. And so what I really appreciate about him is he's spent a lot of time researching, a lot of time lecturing and talking to people. And so he can kind of give us a really informed and well-formed definition, which I is just super appreciated. So today we're excited to welcome Jim Decker to the show. Jim has been a professor of ministry for 18 years, and he's currently teaching and is the division chair at Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's been in ministry and is focused on youth ministry in various ways for over 30 years, and he's presented research on the topic of resilience at various conferences, and he's provided consultations with churches and nonprofits, and we are really fortunate to speak with him today. So, Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this opportunity. Yeah. So, Jim, you have an amazing resume, but we're curious, how did you land here? How did the concept of resilience become a passion of yours? How did you land in this space? Well, that's a, I guess that's, I mean, there's some interesting backstories to these things. Usually when people come into something that really captures their heart, it usually comes out of their own personal issues. And that's kind of what happened for me. There were some pretty intense struggles that happened within my family system. And at the same time, it was kind of like a perfect storm. At the same time, I was commissioned by a denomination to look at female adolescent at-risk issues. So you get to research things like self-injury, depression, you know. And at the same time, I'm dealing with this really tough issue in my own family system. So, so many things were kind of coming at me on that level. And so I, I thought, you know what, I really, I really need to stop my shallow view of how to deal with suffering. Mm-hmm. And I really need to have an honest, clear look at this thing and say, how do you survive this? How do you actually survive this? So in that journey, I was just finishing that research project for the denomination, gave a presentation, and then um, I started to wonder, you know, what do at-risk organizations actually do to help people who are in pretty serious trauma, like self-injury or suicidality? So I started researching different programs across the country as to what they're doing with these young people. And I studied over 150 organizations, like 12-step programs, you know, helping people break addiction, helping people uh, come out of suicide. So at-risk nonprofit organizations, mm. 
call-in centers, you know, suicide call-in centers, you know, what are you, what are you doing to help people who are on the edge of suicide? How do you walk them through that? Uh, I was looking at sort of clinics that help people, uh, very clinical approaches to helping people overcome self-injury. Ask them what they were doing, how they were doing it, and how they define success in their organization. And all these organizations were saying similar things, and so my research head started kicking in. What are these common things? I started coding it. And I discovered three things popped out. All these organizations had at least one, if not two, of these factors that they were trying to address in the lives of these young people. Identity, significance, and purpose. ISP. So what they're trying to do is either fortify one's identity. You're important. You're valuable. You know, you're, you're a meaningful person. Significance. The idea that you play a role in society, mm. that you're important to the community around you, and then purpose. There is a future, there is a hope that you can begin to embrace. Mm. And with any combination of these three, every organization had at least one. Other organizations would have two. Rarely the organizations would have all three together. Because it's just too complicated to have, actually hammer out all three of those things clinically with, with people who are at risk. So I just thought that was really fascinating. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's really, really cool. And I think what's interesting there is that that there's a huge overlap there with what we're doing in ministry in terms of presenting our identity as people, why, you know, we are significant as people, but the communities we're in is significant. And then talking about that purpose long term. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that those two things overlap, especially in your life doing the work you do. And that's really cool that it's so widespread, but boils down to such simple concepts. Exactly. And I think that's the beauty of it, is that these things are just normal in society. I mean, it's the kind of things you encourage people with. You know, saying you're important is a real contribution to someone's identity. Or that, you know, you're in a small group and saying, man, you, what you brought to the table was really great. Um, significance in the group. So those things are happening just kind of naturally. And um, those natural occurrences are kind of, what creates resilience in the lives of people. So anyway, that research was done in around 2005. All this drama was happening in my life, 2004, 2005. It was ongoing. And then um, I started to ask myself this question. Is it really true? Like a good researcher will always question that hypothesis, right? Is, is identity, significance, and purpose really key to dealing with real at-risk stuff? So if that's true, what I had to do was I had to go to a community where there was a lot of nasty stuff happening. And so when I was reading the literature, I kept coming up with this, this thing, the worst possible place you could live as a young person, at risk-wise, like dealing with trauma and drama, is um, in either Bush, Alaska, <laughs> or First Nations Reserves. And so I thought, you know what, I gotta go and visit these places. So I started, so I, I, got, I took a trip to Alaska Spent time in um, an indigenous village, a Yupik and Nupiak uh, village, and um, spent time with young people. And the literature said young people in those communities were like 70%, 70% of young people were in trauma and, and facing some pretty serious garbage in their life. 70%, yeah. Wow. And I was like just shaking my head, right? So I show up in this little village, Uninuqui, so you know, 700, 800 people. And so I start interviewing teachers, physicians' assistants, pastors, leaders in the community. And I'm asking them, you know, 
I'm reading all this stuff, but is this really true? You know, is it really true that these young people are really that assaulted by, by trauma? And I sat across the table having coffee with this physician's assistant. She leaned forward, looked directly in my eyes, and she said, I have seen 100% of the teenage girls in this village having to deal with sexual assault, physical assault. And she started listing this stuff that she had 100% of the girls in that village. And I'm like dying, right? Yeah, it's just killing me. Because you know what? You know what was really weird? I just sat with 10 or 15 of these young girls playing ping pong, sharing song lists, talking about life, talking about school, talking about what they do during the day. And here I am scratching my head going, my goodness, my family system dealt with half the trauma you dealt with and, and were involved in like clinical intervention. You don't have a clinic here. How do you survive? Like, do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? Like, awful things were happening, but it was like, how do you how do you get up in the morning? I know people who can't get out of bed with a third of what you face. Yeah. So that just started making me think, you know, what's going on here? What do they have that we don't have? So this curiosity that started in me after seeing these young women in Bush, Alaska, wondering how do you survive started me on this quest to discover resilience. Somehow resilience was functioning in this village. This, this is where the story got really interesting for me because when I started talking to these young men and women in Bush, Alaska, I discovered that these young women contribute to the whole community. I discovered that these young women, uh, they had to get up in the morning because they were supposed to prepare the food for the village or help, uh, you know, help with the fish, the fish harvest or the berry harvest. They had to contribute to the community. There's high expectations from the community. Uh, there was high relational connectivity with other meaningful people in the village, hmm. that their very name was a Yupik name that had this history and the story of the village. And that name had to survive. And it was because of her that that name was going to survive. I thought, oh my goodness, there's powerful stuff going on here in this community. Hmm. And that's when I started to really study resilience. Yeah. So as we dive into your story, can you help us in a sentence or, or maybe two, help us understand how would you define this idea, the idea of resilience and why is it important and how is it functional? Right. Well, like I said, these were, these were pretty intense stories for me. So when I went back to the office back in Chicago and I started researching this and asking, what is the definition of resilience? Like, what is it really? Uh, I was reading authors like Bonnie Bernard and uh, Rand Conger, Garmazy, uh, Sunia Luther, and Ann Maston were really powerful at the time. This is back in 2006, 2007. They had great definitions. All of them were academic definitions, mm. <laughs> which... Which is fine. Yeah. My head's floating with them. Yeah. No, no, not that helpful. What what they helped me understand though was that resilience is a sociological thing. It's a social, it's a community-based mm. concept. And uh, these particular researchers are just saying, look, it's resilience is a community thing. You have to include community in your definition. So many psychologists and clinicians talk about resilience as a personal effort, personal internal effort, yeah. you know, to character trait and uh, a personality, 
a grit is a common term now uh, since Duckworth's book, grit, mm -hmm. right? And what I discovered is clinicians and sort of with a modernist lens that likes to break things apart and look at the individual, they come up with terms like this. But what I discovered in Alaska, it wasn't just the person's ability to just tough it out. It was a community. And so that's why I started looking at sociologists. Mm. So basically, my the definition I've been working with is the ability of a community to support people in handling tough situations. It's a very basic, simple definition, but it includes community and includes people facing trauma. Mm. So the ability of a community to support people in handling tough situations. Mm. That's really, really good. And I think that's... That's so good because you can lay it over a lot of different communities, a lot of different groups of people, and you can then tailor it. You know, you can have a conversation about what does this look like in our community with our population, with what we've seen before and what we know may be coming ahead. And so that allows you to sort of shape it to wherever you're at, but it's still robust and detailed enough to, to be an accurate guidepost for the people using it. And I'm curious to hear, you've kind of alluded to this in some of your answers thus far, but what are some of those ways uh, that you've seen or heard or read others talk about this concept of resilience where you say, hey, that may be a part of it, but that doesn't focus as much on this community aspect. What are some of those maybe mistaken ways you've seen other people talk about resilience? Right, right. Well, <clears throat> those mistaken ways kind of have sad stories to them. Um, but here's, here's one. Uh, I know of a mom, she's a significant church leader, and um, she, has, she has a few kids. Uh, her oldest daughter uh, was going through some tough times, but the mom was really significant in ministry. And um, so she just started saying to her daughter, you're resilient, you're resilient, you can handle this. And the, and the daughter was like saying, yeah, but the mom was very busy. But the mom kept saying, you're, you're just so resilient. You're so resilient. Well, I happened to know this uh, young woman and was working with her and talking with her and spending time with her. And um, when you got to know her, there were so many things crashing around inside her world. You know, significant relationships were breaking up. Um, certain things, certain understandings about herself were questioned. But her mom just kept saying, you're resilient. You're resilient. Um, and eventually she just started to implode because she knew when she laid her head on the pillow at night, she, she couldn't handle what was going on around her. Mm. So she may have been able to handle something earlier that her mom had said, wow, you're, you made it through that. You're resilient. Well, the mom just continued to label her that way. Mm. And within these new sets of problems that she was dealing with, problems the mom really wasn't aware of and didn't want to see mm. She just kept saying, you know, you're resilient. And this, and this kid just basically imploded. And um, it's, it's just really, uh, really sad. She actually walked away from the faith. She uh, walked away from her family system, formulated a whole new identity herself. You know how I mentioned identity, significance, and purpose? Mm -hmm. when, when, when somebody's not able to cope and they capitulate to the situation, they form, you, you have to form new identities. You have to form new ways of significance and purpose. And so, the, so this young woman just kind of blew up and, and, uh, and did that. And, and the mom was devastated. So like the labeling wasn't an identity. It, it was like her mom was stating, you are resilient. It ended up kind of being more like 
Well, well, the girl was in the process of breaking down and to sit there and label, it was like trying to uh, overcompensate for her doubts or, or weaknesses or, or her inattention even. It, it sounds like more of some kind of denial. And that's a common mistake. Um, see, calling somebody resilient is a real sexy thing to do today. It's what we do, right? We want to compliment somebody. And I call them candy compliments. They're not healthy compliments. They're candy compliments. And calling someone resilient is a really cool thing to do. It's just kind of dangerous, you know, because it's not just a person. What if that person isn't toughing it out? Um, you know, what, what's the community doing? How's the community coming around that young woman and saying, hey, let's walk together. One thing about resilience, and this kind of breaks the negative definitions and misunderstandings of resilience, is, is resilience is able to tell the truth about the garbage. And, and you're able to do that in community. So a common factor that I've observed is when people are actually in a traumatic environment where they're not able to share that and for that trauma to be owned by the community, they have to live in isolation. And that's when their ability to, to exercise resilience becomes far more challenged. Because when you face your struggle alone, the capacity to survive becomes more difficult. And that's why resilience has to have a community awareness, has to have a community lens to truly be identified around a person. Yeah, that's really, really valuable. And I think something you were sort of touching on there is that maybe one person is not resilient, but the community is resilient. And sometimes what we do is, you know, you sort of mentioned this with the mom, you, you kind of try to talk or talk yourself up as a cover for maybe not wanting to deal with some of those messy things that are underneath the surface. Because if you can just push through them instead of sitting there, figuring them out and going through that tough work of healing, it's it's a, honestly, it's a more attractive solution is to say, I'm going to ignore this and push through and just succeed. Right. But sometimes that can end up uh, doing a little bit more damage because we leave in its wake. We haven't dealt with it. And so it's still behind us as we're trying to, to move forward. Right, right, right. You know, and that, that brings up another um, issue that I'm just beginning to notice. I've been studying this for about a year and a half now, is that when we use resilience, kind of like a prescription to help somebody out of their trouble, uh, trouble or trauma. So somebody comes to you and starts talking about some of the drama that they're in and it's, and it's really nasty, it's complicated. And you start using the word resilience as some kind of prescription, clinical prescription that you want that person to exercise. Well, it's an uphill battle if you don't have a clue about the community they're living in. So, so you put on them this, yes, they need to be resilient in their trauma, but they don't have the resources around them. I don't know if you've ever been asked to do something that you just absolutely cannot do in the frustrating space that that creates for you. When somebody comes to you with a, with a trauma and you're, you're trying to address it, it's not just you and them. You actually have to be aware of the communities around them to see what kind of fortified resources they have. Now you can talk to that person about resilience by keeping them connected to the strengths that are actually embedded within their everyday life. So today we've got something new and unique that we're really excited about and we want to share with you. One of the things that we have really enjoyed while working to equip people like you is that we get to hear ideas from other ministry leaders around the country. Across those conversations, we've realized that oftentimes leaders in ministry face similar roadblocks. 
Yeah, and in our world today, especially in a time like this, those roadblocks can become even more obvious, and finding support from others who really understand the problems you're dealing with is crucial. That's why we're excited to announce something new that we're calling Rally Point Roundtables. Each month, we are going to open up virtual groups that allow ministry leaders from around the country to meet with us and each other and discuss a topic that we are all dealing with. You'll get a chance to discuss the issues you are facing and hear creative solutions other people are finding. Our first roundtable is happening on March 18th, and the topic we're all going to be talking about is how to strengthen relationships with others when we're stuck doing life online. It doesn't cost anything to join, but spots are limited intentionally so that we can all learn and contribute to the conversation. We think this is going to be an incredible experience, and we would love for you to be a part of it. You can go to rallypointmin.com roundtable today to get more info and save your spot. You've given some good examples, but I'm curious, let's say we're in a community and we're, we're trying to approach people and create this community of resilience effectively. What would that look like? And what is what does resilience look like when it's operating properly in a community? Right, right. No, very good. That's a great question because uh, the, the rubber has to hit the road somewhere in the community. Then. So one thing that uh, Ann Mastin talks about, she says it's an ordinary magic. She did all this research on resilience and she came up with this observation that it's an ordinary magic. So what you're looking for is something that happens in the ordinary. And then you're looking for its extraordinary power in the life of people. And so when they did all this research on how people really survive trauma, they came up with six factors that foster resilience around these people that survive. And the six factors are meaningful participation, high expectations, caring support, pro-social bonding, clear and consistent boundaries, life skills. So I'll just say those really quickly. So meaningful participation, the idea that a person in their community, in their ordinary lives, they realize or they see or they understand that they have meaningful participation in decisions happening. So if you're dealing with young people in a church, is meaningful participation in that larger church community, is that simply that you have a youth group meeting on Friday night? Or are you actually involved in the meaningful icons of that community, whether it's the church service or whether it's prayer meetings or whatever meaningful icons are in that community, are those young people playing a role in that space? So if you've got a youth ministry and you have student leaders, they're playing meaningful roles. So you're actually fostering an ordinary magic of resilience mm-hmm. among those student leaders that they play a specific role. And then you you give them high expectations. That's number two. Expectations that you know they're not doing these things right now. You can envision them doing them and you give them those things and then you support them in that process. And so caring support feeds into that. So how do you care and support them in meeting those expectations? Hmm. This usually comes out of non-parental adult role models. It's interesting that family systems can do this stuff in resilience, but but there's nothing like non-parental adults investing in this kind of factors in the lives of kids. And the next, pro-social bonding. You know what's an interesting thing I've observed? Doing youth ministry for 30 years, the most corny thing in a youth ministry is when they give their youth ministry a new name. Hey, they buy t-shirts, put a fancy logo on it, and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You've, you've seen it, right? It's a blast. But that's what that's doing is it's causing pro-social bonding. We gather around this thing called Crash or whatever. I mean, they give their name, right? 
but they're developing a pro-social bond. And that's a powerful resilience factor. And then clear and consistent boundaries. People just know inside what social boundaries we need to live in. You can't just come into a youth group and start, you know, slapping people around for fun or whatever. I mean, there's, there's pro-social boundaries. And then life skills, knowing that these people have skills to be able to make it in the next stage of life. One of the most dangerous things I've heard among young people is they use this word adulting. I don't want to adult. And to me, I kind of go, okay, so there's a factor of resilience that, that's going to be missing because they're not wanting to enter into some of these life skills that are important for their future. So if that door is kind of shut, then I start paying attention to these other doors. How's high expectations? How's caring support? How's meaningful participation? So I start leaning on those other things to start embedding resilience. Because when trauma hits the fan, they'll have those at least those other things to then lean on. I don't know, is that helpful, those, those six points? Some people offer four, but they're all within these this range. Yeah, I almost picture what you're describing as some sort of web, and the individual can't catch themselves. Uh, they have to have multiple points to anchor. And so it doesn't matter how much a spider has like of webbing inside of them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that, that makes sense. I'm, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I have actually no idea how that works. But in my mind, they have to pin their web to different things. And so similarly, what you're saying is you can't actually build resilience like a resilience web without the community around you to pin it to. Right, right, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. So that's good all conceptually, and I think that's really valuable to mm -hmm. chew on. I want to know, how do you recommend we start building those resilience factors into our communities and ministries? What are just, you know, the bullet points of do these things to start building these factors inherently into your ministry and community? Mm hmm. So, um, boy, I could I could come at this for a couple of ways. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure after multiple decades. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's do it this way. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be I don't mean to be theoretical. This has very real wheels. I mean, there's real people mm -hmm. here that are feeling the benefits of this right now to this day because these ministries have taken this lens. Basically, it's asking the leaders to pull on a set of glasses that is constantly aware of these six factors. You're always paying attention. So that when somebody who comes over to your house and is putting a wood stove in your basement, how do I interact with them to, to let them know their identity, significance, purpose, that they have a meaningful participation in my experience? And even though they're going to disappear, and I'm not going to see them again, I'm going to thank them, and I'm going to use language that says, you've been important to me. Thank you for your meaningful participation in my experience at my house. And be able to say stuff like that. Just It could be just an ordinary magic, common conversation. Just the everyday, ordinary thing. Listening to these factors, watching opportunities to even just say a word, just name it, throw it out there, and leave it to God to continue to foster resilience in their lives wherever. Because I'm part of a community, even though it's an extended community, I'm still part of a community, I'm still going to contribute these factors to the people I meet. Mm. So it's a way of thinking and a way of talking, and it's an everyday, ordinary magic. Yeah, one of the things I'm curious about is a theory that we use in therapy. It's a concept that we, we call strength-focused counseling, right? It, it's where you have a client that's in front of you, and they tend to do a lot of self-loathing, and they come in and tell you how horrible they are or whatever. And what you try to do is, right. is identify some of the strengths right. that the person has exhibited. So unlike the mom where she was labeling something that didn't exist, you're trying to add something that you have seen exist. So, you know, I've seen you make 
these kinds of decisions in the past. And, and over the course of the year, you've started to change and started to make decisions like this now. And that shows me some of your strength and, and your growing wisdom and your ability to, to think abstractly or, or reason or, or use wisdom right. or, or whatever. Right. So, so take the case that you gave. It's a perfect case. Let's say you're dealing with that very same person and you're identifying the certain abilities that they have. But you could also ask them the question in the next moment and say, has anybody else recognized that in you? Have you spent time with them? Hmm. You see how that moves it into community. Hmm. So has anybody ever said that to you before? Do you notice what they said? What did they see in you? And then you rehearse their language with that person. And then say, hey, you know what? Have you ever thought of hanging out with more people like that? Can you identify more people like that in your life? And, and so you start to move them into community of strength, where it's not just themselves saying it to themselves, but then you're encouraging them to spend time with people who are saying it about them as well. So it's almost like looking at your community as a as a body, as a person, and saying, how does that body function with these factors around that person? So in strength-focused counseling, it, it's a building yeah. project. It's kind of like you take the strengths you've identified and you go one step further, like counseling meets weightlifting. So we're just going to try to build a little bit more strength. I've identified this thing that you're doing well, and let's try to build sure. on that and build on that and build on that. And so some part of me, that's how I, I've identified like the individual aspect of resilience. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. You said it so well. Mm. That's great. So let's flip the script for a minute and try something a little bit different. So now you're a leader in a community. You're wanting to provide resilience around the people that you're, you're doing ministry with. Youth pastors make this mistake. Youth pastors will think that their, their program is all that in a bag of chips, right? They'll, they'll think that, you know, they, they've got this meaningful footprint in the life of these young people. And that's true, but that footprint is maybe two hours a week. Hmm. So where I encourage youth pastors and people in nonprofit organizations doing ministry is to say, okay, let's stop thinking of just about what we do, but let's do a community assessment. And so uh, while I've been doing research on resilience, I've also been working with how to do community assessments. And then I've seen how these two come together. So in one of these villages in Alaska, Scammon Bay, I know a, I know a youth pastor out there. And imagine this. Imagine you're the youth pastor of a village and you have 100% youth participation. 100% of youth in the village come to your youth ministry. Think about that for a moment. That's massive, right? That the whole next generation of that village is sitting in your Bible study. Wow, right? And so the youth pastor is like, man, I'm going to change this community. This community is going to be radically different because we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about Bible study. We're going to do all this, this Bible Jesus church stuff. And, and I, I love God, okay? So I'm not down in that. That's, that's for real. That's awesome. But nothing was happening. Change wasn't taking place. There was a suicide in the village. And there were kids from the youth group, you know. And, and he, so he's scratching his head. What's going on, you know? What, what can I do? What can I do? Something's messed up. Dude. It's like, well, why don't you do a community assessment and find out where the dominant influences are in the lives of these young people? So just sit back, look over a Google map of your village and say, where are the places kids spend time at? Mm. Who are the influential leaders in those places? What are they saying? What are they doing? And how are you, to use your illustration, how could you build a web of support that has theological language, that has mm. a theological voice in those spaces to create resilience in the lives of these kids? And not just harbor your theological language inside mm. of Bible study inside the church for two hours a week. So 
Hmm. You know, this person's talking with a village elder. This person's talking with the mayor. This person's talking with the school counselor, uh, the clinician in the village, the woodworker in the village. I mean, it's going all across the village, finding out what these people are doing and saying in the lives of these young people. And what he's doing is he's looking for God's presence already in the village and looking for how God is fostering strengths. And then he's now putting theological language to that in his Bible studies, in his youth ministry activities. He's going to those places, and he's being the icon of God's presence there. And so so that's a strategic approach. Community assessment, do it with a sense that you're looking for God's presence in the community, and then that's going to help you give theological language to Hmm. fostering resilience. Not only are you affirming what's already going on around those kids and giving that theological language, you're also able to observe how uh, observe gaps, and then you use you recognize the gaps, the missing pieces of resilience, and then you start programming that into the actual activities that you are responsible for doing. So you then use your resources and your time with those young people to fill those gaps knowing that what you've done is you've created that web of resilience for those kids in that community. I really like that term, ordinary magic, just because, you know, it does seem a lot of the time just like a casual thing. We're going to your game, we're writing you a note, we're asking you to grab lunch or coffee or something. And what's great about that is that we're sometimes not aware of what a difference doing those simple things makes in the lives of a student until we're either further down the line or until they come out and tell us it seems like sort of what you're talking about, getting the everyday integration of encouragement, consistency, and prayer and community really seems to be something that makes a massive difference over time. Right, right. And and it's been my mission as I do consulting and ministry, ministry recommendations to help leaders pay attention to these six factors, deliberately pay attention to these six factors. And sometimes it's just giving them the courage to say something in a deliberate fashion and registering it in their heads. Okay, I'm not just encouraging one all the time. I'm actually addressing all six to create that web of resilience around that person. And if you can strategically and deliberately pay attention to these things and spread your ministries around and doing theologically uh, naming and affirming and supporting what's going on in the community, the kind of web of strength that's created becomes so powerful. And the thing is, you're, you're doing it not because they've got a problem and you're trying to fix them. You're, you're doing it because this is just really good ministry. It provides strength for the trouble that's going to come. Well, Jim, that is all. I mean, this entire conversation has been just so eye-opening and really kind of shifted my perspective on how to think about resilience and especially in terms of of ministry. Um, But I'm curious to hear you kind of put into words, if there's just one thing from this conversation you could give our listeners to take away, what would it be? Well, I I would recommend that you put on lenses for resilience and don't be shy to name this as God's work in your community and in your ministry. That's, that's where I think I would, I would lay it down. There's so many opportunities for us to see resilience functioning around us and to just be deliberately naming that and engaging that. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. And if, if any of your listeners are interested in contacting me, I've got this matrix that I can walk through uh, with them to do some community assessment and uh, having a look at how resilience functions in the community. Feel free to email me at jim.decker at cornerstone.edu. 
Jim, this has been fantastic. And thank you so much for taking the time being on and, and making yourself available. You've been fantastic. Thank you for having me. This has been great. I really appreciate the depth and the breadth and the wisdom that Jim has on this topic of resilience. And what's really striking me today is the need for resilience to be built into that web of community. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how he spoke about it such a simple way. You know, he talked about those six factors and emphasizing identity, significance, and purpose, ISP, and just boiling it down to those basic terms that can be applied so broadly like you were talking about bobby i think really helps focus us as we try to build resilience in our communities well listening to jim today has been great especially hearing about how a big topic like resilience can be practically brought to our ministries and communities and we have a resource for you that we think is going to be equally as valuable it's a guide that walks through several different resilience factors and gives some practical advice that any leader can consider using in their ministry context. Yeah, to get that guide, go to rallypointmen.com podcast and subscribe with your email. You'll get a link there where you can download this resource and you'll get others that we've created just for you. And if you like what you heard today, please rate or review this podcast. By doing that, you can empower other leaders with the tools that can help them to support hurting people. And also, we want to hear from you. So we'd love to know how this episode has helped you or what challenges you're facing in your environment that we could cover in a future episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, just send us an email to hello at rallypointmin.com. Thanks so much for listening.